Um, so today we are back at our series called You Lost Me at Leviticus. This is our third series where we're going to go in the most holy place. Uh, but before we start, let's just pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you and we say, Lord, thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. It's a blessing to be here at church, Lord. Um, and as we discuss the most holy place, Lord, the place of your Shekinah glory, I pray, Lord, that we would be able to come into into your presence, Lord, that your presence will be with us now, that when we leave this place, we will know and everybody else will know that we have been with Jesus. Bless and keep us now in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've been busy with this uh, series, You Lost Me at Leviticus, and um, I just want to, I don't know if I've actually communicated this before, but each of the sermon series that we're going through is, is a lens that help us to go deeper into Daniel and in Revelation, right? So the big story of the Bible gives us a bit of a handle of the big narrative, the meta-narrative of Scripture. Then the sanctuary is a lens that we get to understand Daniel and Revelation. Because when we get to Daniel and Revelation, you'll see that the sanctuary is actually one of the major things that brings all of the major themes together. The book of Revelation actually walks through the sanctuary. So you cannot not, not understand the book of Revelation if you have, if you have no knowledge of the sanctuary. And a lot of the prophecies in the book of Revelation actually builds on the prophecies of Daniel's. And so think of each Bible series as a step helping us to understand the next one and the next one. And all of it basically surrounds itself with this verse, Exodus chapter 25. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That was God's plan all along. When God created uh, humanity in this world, His plan was to dwell with His people. But sin came and sin messed that up. And so now God is trying to unravel the messiness of sin and the infection that, that, that is in our, in our planet. And so that's the point of the sanctuary. And we call this the Emmanuel principle. And we see it living out in Jesus' life. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It literally means He shekinahed with us. He pitched His tent with us. That's the point of Jesus' incarnation, to be closer to us, to come close to His people. And we have seen His glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, various times as we were going through the series, there were quite a significant amount of people that were coming and having questions about assurance and salvation. How do we know? Because obviously the sanctuary has a lot of questions about judgment. But I want us to frame our perspective, frame our mind to always remember it's about grace and truth. Anything that, that veers us away from this idea that God is coming with a God of love, uh, the God of love is coming with a posture of grace and truth towards us, if we are fearful, then we should ask ourselves, why am I fearful? Maybe I'm misunderstanding something because the gospel from Genesis 1 verse 1 all the way through the end of Revelation is always about a God of grace coming towards us. And so it's the same when we come to the most holy. Now, the most holy place is the one that, that kind of elicits a little bit of fear, right? This is the sanctuary and you have the courtyard, the holy place and the most holy place. <clears throat> and so if you look about the work of Christ, he starts in the courtyard, um, his, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. He moves into the most holy place or the holy place where he mediates for us. But then when he moves into the most holy place, we believe that there's a point of judgment. And when we get to a point of judgment, we get a bit fearful. And so today I want to speak about judgment and assurance. And there's two things in the most holy place that will give us some indication of what it means to understand the judgment, but also the assurance. These two things is the furniture and the festival. The furniture is the furniture set that's in the most holy place. And then the festival is the day that's connected to it. It was the high day 
of the liturgical kind of feasts of the Jews, and it's the Day of Atonement. Now, next week, Pastor Andrew is going to speak about the feasts, and he will touch on the Day of Atonement. Today, I just want to speak about the furniture and how we can understand judgment and assurance at the same time, and they're not contradictory, but kept in tension. So, the first point I want to make before we even move into the most holy place is that the sanctuary model gives us confidence. If you walk through the sanctuary, if you just take one part of the sanctuary, you, it's understandable that you could misunderstand it and freak out a little bit. If you misunderstand judgment in the context of the full sanctuary, you'll think that God is a vindictive, scary God. But if you walk through the sanctuary as it is intended, it gives us actually a lot of confidence and assurance. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 says this, Dear children, continue in Him. Which means that there's already, already a relationship, there's already a, a covenant with God, and so he's saying continue with something that you've already started. Continue in him so that when he appears, when the second coming comes, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. What is John telling us here? He says, is he saying that before Jesus comes, there's going to be fear, that you have to be fearful, that there won't be any assurance? No, no, he's saying... Be confident and be unashamed. When Jesus comes, you are ready when you know when he comes. Don't be fearful. Don't be, don't be afraid. He continues later on in 1 John chapter 4. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he is in God. So it means that the God dwelling with us and we dwelling in God has to do with a confession that Jesus is the Son of God, that we have a relationship with him, that we're in the saving grace relationship. He continues. He says, so that we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Right? We, this knowledge is not just knowing it, but it's an experiential knowledge. We know it because we've experienced it. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Once again, that idea of abiding. What, is, what does it mean to abide? It means to have a relationship. It means to walk continually with God. It means to follow Him as your shepherd. It means to have this continual relationship with God as you journey through life. He continues in verse 17. He says, By this love perfected within us, so this is the idea that there's an abiding that happens, but as you abide in that relationship, there is a perfection that happens. There's a maturation that happens so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Does that seem that you are fearful of the day of, con of judgment? No. He says that you have confidence, that you're not unafraid, that you can have assurance in the day of judgment because as he is also, we are in this world. There is no fear in love. When it comes to the idea of judgment, when it comes to the idea of the end of times, we should not be fearful in the sense that, oh, you know, am I going to be right? Right? He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment. Now, is there going to be punishment in the judgment? 100%. There is judgment coming. And there are going to be people that is going to be exceptionally fearful and that is going to receive judgment and condemnation. But it doesn't have to be you. That's the beauty of it. You get to choose which side of the, the fence you're going to be on, Right? And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. The whole point of this whole story is God demonstrating that he loved us first. While we were still sinners and scoundrels, he came and he loved us and he gave himself for us, right? So if you walk through the sanctuary, you'll know that you have confessed and repented from your sins. You were moving in a direction of death. 
you are moving in a, in a direction of destruction, and then you repent. The word literally means metanoia. The word means to turn around. You turn around, and now you're on a different trajectory. There is a difference between struggling and rebellion. If you're struggling with sin, that's a normal human condition. We all struggle with sin. But our trajectory is not towards sin and death. Our trajectory is towards God. And as you sin, or as you struggle, you will overcome sin. But as you overcome sin, there will be more sin because the devil will keep on tempting you. And so with the power of God, you will overcome that sin. And so it's an upward trajectory as you move closer to Jesus. Rebellion is a downward trajectory away from God. Right? So when you move into the sanctuary, you move from the point of confession, repentance, forgiveness, and surrender. That's only the first, the first uh, uh, um, article there. Right? Then you move to the courtyard where you are baptized uh, again. So uh, Olivia will be baptized next week. That's her point where she's like, I have accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Now I'm being baptized, which is representative of being, being, uh, uh, dying into him and resurrecting anew. That is what we call justification. Then we move into the sanctification part, the Bible study, the witnessing, and the prayer. So when we get to our revival phase, we are essentially saying, we want you to be sanctified, but you need to be in your own Bible study. I can't read the Bible for you. I can assist you in the journey, but you need to read the Bible for yourself. You need the Spirit to speak to you for yourself. You need to be praying for yourself. Now, we pray for you. We pray for the whole church. Every week as, a, as, as pastors, we come together at our staff meeting. We pray for our church. Currently at the moment, our pastors and other individuals fast on, on Tuesdays. Why? For our church, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Because we care and love for our church. But you also need to be praying. You also need to be communing with God and connecting with God. That is what abiding means. And there's also a point of witnessing. You have been called by God to be a witness into this world. Have I been called to be a witness? 100%. Has Pastor Andrew been called to be a witness? 100%. Has Kevin? Yes. Robbie? Yes. Right? Matt? Yes. Right? All of us have been called to be witnesses. As we receive, we give out. Right? So the whole process. Now, when we get to the most holy place, when we will get to judgment, we get to a point where we already know that we're accepted by God. We're already justified by God. We already have that power within us that is working within us, that is changing us and sanctifying us. When we get to judgment, we are moving to a place where we have gone through all of those phases. It is not that we're coming to Jesus without any of those things, without any of that grace. We come already with that grace. So point number two is judgment doesn't bring condemnation because you're already condemned. Let that sink in. If you're outside of the sanctuary, you're already condemned. Without Jesus, you're already condemned. The judgment doesn't bring condemnation. It affirms your condemnation that has been there all the time. If you're fearful of judgment, it's already because you're already condemned and you know that they're going to just establish that even more. Judgment doesn't bring the condemnation. We are all condemned from the moment that we were born. Right? Listen to Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? We know that we are under condemnation. Each of us. We are born that way and without Jesus we will die that way. But when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as you walk through the door, 
and you accept Him as the only way of salvation, as you accept Him as the Lamb that was sacrificed for your sin, as you are baptized into His death and resurrected in you, as you consume, consume Him the bread of life, as you pray through Him as the incense, as you witness as He was the witness of the world, as you are doing these things, you are justified and you are sanctified. You are removed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. That's the point. So when you get to the judgment part at the end of the most holy place, you're like, man, I'm, I'm ready for this. Why? Because not because I'm good, but because He is good and He has demonstrated that all the way. I don't need to be fearful, right? And so when we look at the story, we will see that we are saved from the penalty of sin. Right here in the courtyard, we are justified. But then we are saved from the power of sin. That's sanctification. That's the growth aspect. We were growing in grace, growing more, becoming more like Jesus, the image of God being restored in us. So the whole process, the whole sanctuary model is not a model that we are fearful of or want to throw away. Because if you throw that away, you kind of throw away the work of Jesus because it's all mapped out in this. And so when we get to the idea of the investigative judgment and judgment as a whole, we should not say, oh, but that doesn't sound like God. No, no, that sounds exactly like God because God is a just God. Right? And this is found entering the most holy place. If you enter the most holy place, you will see that there's three gates or three, uh, three entrances that you have to walk through. Now, we've spoken about some of these before. The first one that you go through here is, um, is John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So before you come into the sanctuary, you have to realize there's only way, one way of salvation, Jesus. And then when you move through, you'll get to the second veil, but only the priests could go into the most holy place during the Old Testament time. But here in Peter, we read this. It says, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. So because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus now makes all of us priests. So we don't need to go to a priest in order to go into the holy place. We don't need a priest to read the Bible for us. We don't need a priest to pray for us. We don't need a priest to witness for us. No, 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 no. That is our work because of Jesus, what he has done for us. He has included us into the, fa to the family of, of priesthood. So it is a blessing that you can read the Bible for yourself. It is a blessing that you can pray for yourself. It is a blessing that God has called you to witness. He's giving you that responsibility and that work. And so now we can move into that place because of Jesus. But then on the third veil, there's a bit of a snag here. It says, and the third veil could only be accessed once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and then it could only be done by the high priest. So on the outer court, the, the sinners could get, get, they would put their hands on the, the lamb and it would be sacrificed. But then the priest would go into the most holy place. But there's been access granted to us because of Jesus. But then it says that only the high priest could go in. How do we get into this place? Now, the, this is what the sanctuary would have looked like. There was a gate or a, a, a curtain there. And on this curtain... All of these colors kind of represent something, but the one thing I want to speak about is on the curtain there, there was an, an, an angel figure on there, embroidered on there, to show the idea that nobody could enter here because you're entering into God's presence. Now, this isn't a new or, or um, kind of different interpretation or, or thing that happened. This was a kind of general thing. We are sinners and we cannot enter into God's presence. But something happened when Jesus died on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, it's a 20-meter-long uh, um, curtain, about 10 centimeters thick. There's no way that a human being could tear that from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. 
Since then, Hebrews says, because of this event, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but in one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to him in the time of need. So in every aspect, we can come in confidence. We can come in confidence to, to, to the, the altar of, of, uh, of sacrifice. Why? Because of Jesus. We can come with confidence to the labor. Why? Because of Jesus. We can step confidently into the, to the holy place. Why? Because of Jesus. And now we can step confidently into the most holy place. Why? Because of Jesus. Because we have a high priest, not just a priest, but a high priest that steps in with us, that knows what it means to be human, that has walked our, 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 our dirty streets, that has sacrificed himself for us, and now we come with confidence to what? The most holy place, where the throne is, where judgment will happen. Why? Because of Jesus. Judgment doesn't bring fear for us. It might bring fear for people that's outside of Jesus, that doesn't abide in him, but for us, it doesn't bring fear. Therefore, once again, Hebrews says, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... Can you see how the Bible, the New Testament, repeatedly says this? Have confidence, have confidence, have confidence. Don't be fearful to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance, not half assurance, just a little bit assurance, no, 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 full assurance of faith with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Can you see this idea of justification and sanctification? We come with our consciences completely cleaned and our bodies completely washed. This idea that we are justified and sanctified. So here's the application in this section before we even get into the most holy place and look at the furniture. There is 24-7, 365 bold access to the throne of grace because of Jesus. Around the clock, no matter what day it is, 1st of November, 1st of January, 1st of March, doesn't matter. doesn't matter what day of year it is, doesn't matter what year it is. Because of Jesus, you have bold access, not just access, bold access to the, to the throne. Where you can come in and say, Lord, I have messed up, please forgive me. I confess my sins. And He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can have full assurance of salvation if we are connected to Jesus. Now, if you step into the most holy place, this is the furniture that you will see. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus chapter 25, it speaks about the Ark of the Covenant. It says, Have the people make an ark of acacia wood and sacred chest, 40, 45 inches long, 20, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it inside and outside with pure gold and run a mold, molding of gold all around it. Then make two cherubim from hammered gold and place them on the two ends of the atonement cover. So there's this ark, there's two angels, and then there's an atonement cover, sometimes called the mercy seat. And so God's presence, His Shekinah glory presence, was between these two angels. Mold the cherubim on each end of the atonement cover, making it all one piece of gold. The cherubim will face each other and look down on the atonement cover. With their wings spread above it, they will protect it. So the Ark of the Covenant represented God's dwelling with His people, God being there. So if you can imagine the sanctuary, the sanctuary is a model of, God, of Jesus and His work, but his, God's Shekinah glory presence is in the most holy place. That's where He resides. That's where His place of residence for the Israelites. 
Now, this isn't a new concept. This is a concept that has been there since Genesis. God's presence was with his, with his, uh, with his people and then in, in the garden, and then when they sinned, they were kicked out of the garden. And then what was placed right in front of the garden, the gateway to the garden? It was two angels to protect them from going in. Right, so this is symbolic of this idea that the first sanctuary was the garden. And then later on when God calls his people together, the first person that he calls is Moses. And I want to go to an Old Testament verse that you probably wouldn't have connected to the sanctuary, but I want to read it to you because it's very interesting. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets um, of stone like the first. So God had given the law to Moses. He broke that law out of frustration. And so God says to him, No, you cut these out again and bring them up. And I will write on the tablets the words that, you were, that were on the first tablet which you broke. So the first idea that we have here is that there's a law. There's a covenant, right? God says, bring the covenant. Be ready by the morning and, and come, up to the morn, uh, to the, um, come up in the morning to the Mount Sinai, so to a specific point. In biblical literature, the idea of meeting God on a mountain means this idea of coming to God's place. Constantly in, in prophecy, in revelation, and even in, in Genesis, they think that there's this idea that God's meeting place is on the mountain. That's where the sanctuary was. If you read Ezekiel chapter 28, which we have done already, and Isaiah chapter 14, which speaks about the fall of Lucifer as the covering cherub, you will realize that he was on the mountain of God. And present yourself there to me on the top of a mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all of the mountains. So God says, whoa, everybody needs to leave. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. He's saying, my presence is so powerful and the sin in the people is so bad that if they come close, they will die. They need to remove themselves. So we have this idea that God's presence and sin cannot be in the same place. So there's tablets of stone, there's the presence of God. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to the Mount Sinai as the Lord commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the what? In the cloud. Why in the cloud? The cloud was this idea of covering, right? And stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the Lord comes close to Moses, and the way that he can come close to Moses is by shrouding him in a cloud. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Now just pause here. We have this idea of a Ten Commandments, the law that's there. There's a shroud, there's a cloud, there's the presence of God. And in the presence of God, we have this idea where suddenly now we see who God is. You're in the, the most presence of God, the Shekinah glory is shining forth. And it gives us a description of who this God is. The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious. Does this sound like a severe, unjust God? Merciful God, gracious, slow to anger. You know the Hebrew word for slow to anger means long in nose, right? The reason is, is that he, in the Hebrew kind of idiomatic phrase, if, that, if you're angry, you're going to snort. And so if you have a short nose, that means that the air is going to come out quite quickly, right? But if you have a long nose, it means the air is going to take long. So he's saying the, the Lord is long of nose. He's slow to anger. He doesn't take, he, it takes a lot to get him really upset. He's gracious unto you. He's merciful unto you. Abounding in steadfast love. That word steadfast love, the Hebrew word is chesed. It is the word for covenantal faithfulness. Every time that, that we speak about the love of God in terms of covenantal uh, privileges is this idea of steadfast love. A covenant where he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's not an emotional love. It's not a love that, oh, today I like you and tomorrow I don't. And you've upset me today, so now I'm going to... No, no, no. It's a love that's consistent, steadfast love and faithfulness. 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, I just want to pause you. If you remember the series that we did just before this one, you, you um, long story short, when we spoke about crisis, we had a whole sermon that dug up the idea of what sin is in Psalm 32. And the three concepts that we spoke about was iniquity, transgression, and sin. Iniquity is this bentness and brokenness in us. Transgression is this breaking of pesha, the breaking of relationship, the breaking of our relationship towards God. And sin is the actual action of not hitting the mark. So here it says, this God is gracious and loving and kind and long, slow to anger. And he comes and he forgives the iniquity and the transgression and the sin, the broad categories of sin. He wipes it clean. But who will by no means clear the guilty? And by that we should say, amen. Because what kind of God would this be if he clears the guilty? People that have done wrong and haven't asked for forgiveness. And yet he says, it's okay. If a judge had to do that today, if a judge had to say, yeah, 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 you've stolen this, but it's okay, you can go. We would say, whoa, 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 that's not on. That's not right. That's unjust. So here we have a God that's gracious and merciful and good and abounding in love with steadfast love comes towards us and says, I know that you have iniquity in your heart. I know that you have transgression in your heart. I know that you're a sinner. I know who you are. You're a sinner and you're a scoundrel. But I will forgive you because you have come to me. You have confessed your sin and the blood of Jesus has cleansed you and the power of the Holy Spirit is in you to transform you and change you. You are mine and I love you. But there are some that have not accepted the gift of Jesus and he cannot acquit their guilt. Is that not a just judge? And so from the get-go, before God even gives the idea of what the sanctuary is, he says to you, this is who I am. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the children into the third and fourth generation. God says that this, this sin will just grow and grow and grow. We see the same in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With, he, with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So even the angels feel like, well, we need to cover ourselves because the glory and the radiance of God is so much. In Revelation, we see the same idea of the sanctuary and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes, all around within, and day and night never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So when we put this together, right, the idea of the Old Testament, we put this idea that there's an element of law. He had to bring this, this commandments. Then there was an unmediated entrance meant death. That's why he put the angels there. Because if you just entered into the presence of God, you would die because of your sin. There was a smoke or a cloud cover that helped that to, be, uh, to, to God to kind of cover himself. Then we see that there's just judgment. And then we see that God's presence reveals a God of love. That's already rooted in the Old Testament. So when we get to the, to the, to the ark, and we see what's happening here. We see some interesting things. Hebrews chapter 9 explains to us what's in the ark. It says, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense, that's behind you. If you're standing, as you're entering, you'd have the golden incense behind you. And the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, which was the golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tab tablets of the covenant. Right? So, if you walk into the most holy place. You will enter God's Shekinah glory. 
you will enter there and the, the angels would cover that. That would be called the mercy seat, right? It's the seat where God judges. And then underneath there, inside there, there were these three elements, Aaron's rod, which show that God chose his specific Levites. And that's not us, we are chosen. Then there was specifically the manna that showed God's provision. And then there was the law, which is the covenant. So all of these elements reminded them that they are God's covenantal people. God had made a covenant with them. That's what's called the Ark of the Covenant. Constantly, we are reminded by this idea that the God that's on the judgment seat is the God that is the God of the covenant, the God of the faithful covenant, the God that makes him responsible for the covenant. So the God that judges you is the God that died for you, is the God that sends the Holy Spirit to advocate for you. Should we fearful for the judgment? Should we be worried about the judgment? No. From the get-go, we know that God is with us. He is the door. He is the offering. He is the labor. He is the, the bread. He is the, the witness. He is the prayer. Every step of the way, Jesus is helping us. And, and, and when we get to the, the point of judgment, we have already been justified. The Holy Spirit is already working in our lives. We're already in a trajectory towards God. When we get to judgment, we should say, Lord, we are ready for this. Now, some of you who have been Seventh-day Adventists for a while might object and say, but whoa, whoa, whoa. We have read certain quotes that kind of make us feel uncomfortable. One of them would be this one. Ellen White says this. She says, She's a, one of the founders of our church. She said, we are never to rest in a satisfied condition and cease to make advancements saying, I am saved. What? But we've just gone through all of this. Should I not say that I've been justified and sanctified? Well, why should I not say that I'm saved? When this idea is entertained, the motives of watchfulness for prayers, for earnest endeavor to press onward to higher attainments cease to exist. No sanctified tongue will, will be found uttering these words till Christ shall come and we enter, into th in, enter in through the gates into the city of God. Then with the utmost propriety, we may give glory to God and to the Lamb for the eternal deliverance. As long as man is full of weakness, for, uh, for of himself he cannot uh, save his own soul, he should never dare say, I am saved. So is she saying that we cannot be assured of salvation? No, no, no. She's saying you can be assured of salvation knowing that it does, isn't from you. And being fully aware that temptation is around every single corner and that you're not as strong as what you think you are and that you will fall without Jesus at everything. So don't be so assured that once saved, always saved. Be very watchful that the heart is deceptive above all things and desperately wicked, and that your carnal nature will constantly try and pull you off, off course, and that the devil is around every single bush trying to get you to fall away from God. So hold on to Jesus. That's what she's saying. Your assurance shouldn't be in the fact that you were saved yesterday. Your assurance should be, I'm saved today because I'm holding on to Jesus today in this very moment. It never ceases. You see, there's still assurance in salvation, but it's not because you're saying, yeah, 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 I made a decision for Jesus last week or last month or last year or 10, 10 years ago. No, did you make a decision for Jesus today? Is that Holy Spirit working into, in, in you today? Is He sanctifying you today? Another quote from Ellen White in Christ's Object Lesson, she says, those who accept the Savior, however sincere their conversion, should never be taught to say or feel that they are saved. This is misleading. Those who accept the Savior, however sincere... Oh, sorry. Uh, let me go to the next one here. Can you go to the next slide there? Everyone should be taught to cherish a hope and a faith. But even when we give ourselves to Christ and know that He accepts us, we are not beyond the reach of temptation. That's her point. 
is to say, don't minimize temptation. Don't minimize sin. That doesn't mean that you cannot be assured that Christ is powerful enough to save you. But you are cognizant that there are powers trying to pull you down. God, God's word declares, many shall be purified and made white and tried. Only he who endures the trial will receive the crown of life. What does that mean? It means that this is war. And in war, there's going to be bullets that are going to be flying. And so just hold on to Jesus. Hold on to Jesus, right? Because there's the other side to the coin which he speaks about as well. And this is the most beautiful, profound thing for me about reading the works of Anna White is that she gets this right so many times by keeping the tension to stuff. We fall on either side sometimes. We overemphasize one thing to the detriment of something else. But she keeps the balance so well. Here's the other side. Same author says this. Each one of you may know, may know for yourself that you, are, you have a living Savior, that He is your helper and your God. You need not stand where you say, I do not know whether I am saved. Do you believe in Christ as your personal Savior? If you do, then rejoice. We do not rejoice half as much as we should. She says, be happy you're saved. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you're saved. How do you stay saved is the question, and that is being connected to Jesus all the time. Being in the Word, praying, witnessing, coming together as fellowship, walking the good walk, keeping your eyes on Jesus and Him alone. Now, some of you will tell you that they will begin to reckon and reckon and reckon when the latter rain is coming. Trying to plan it, oh, is it time for me to give my life to Jesus? Is it time, la, la. I would rather that you would reckon right now whether you have brought eternity into your reckoning concerning your individual self. Consider whether you have brought eternity daily to view. If you are right with God today, you are ready if Christ should come today. So question, are you ready with Jesus today? Are you ready with Jesus in this moment? Yeah, yeah, I prayed yesterday. I prayed last week. I made a connection. No, no, no. Are you ready to meet Jesus today? Are you connected to Jesus today? Do you have a relationship with him? You won't be saved by your dad's relationship with him or your grandfather or your mother or your cousin or your pastor or your elder. You're saved by your relationship. What we need is Christ formed within the hope of glory. We want that you should have a deep and earnest longing for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your old tattered garments of self-righteousness will not give you an entrance into the kingdom of God. So when she speaks about the assurance of salvation, when she is speaking about this idea that you should be careful by saying that you are saved, she's not saying that you're not saved. She's saying be careful that you are putting too much merit maybe in your own tattered garments. The only way that you can put on the garments of Jesus is if you're walking with Him every single day. If you have a living relationship with Him. Are you growing in grace? Are you, are you connecting with Him? Are you, are you di displaying the fruits of the Spirit? But that garment is woven... Uh, sorry, let me go back here. Your old tattered garments of the self-righteousness will not give you an entrance into the kingdom of God, but that garment that is woven in the loom of heaven, the righteousness of Jesus Christ will. It will give you an inheritance among the sanctified. Many years ago, I was probably, I don't know, probably 10 or 11 years old. A friend of mine, or kind of guy that liked my sister, he, um, he was in church and he just got a new motorbike. And man, I just love motorbikes. And so I said to him, constantly said to him, hey, take me for a ride, take me for a ride. He never wanted to. And one day, right after church, he said, okay, I'll take you for a quick ride. So I put the helmet on and it was a very fast superbike. And I don't know if you've ever been on a superbike, but the seat at the back is not very big. 
quite small, right? And so I'm 10, 11, I want to show you, seem tough in front of this guy. So I sit on the bike, and so he kind of gets out of church, and he's riding slow, and he's got his visor up, and he's kind of driving, and I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to be fun. And as we took the first corner, it's like this massive straight down, he puts his, before he puts his visor down, he's like, hold on. I'm like, ah, and he goes on, and I'm just holding on to him. And he's just going like a bullet, right? And in that moment, I'm thinking, I'm going to die today, right? I'm going to die. And I can feel myself slipping off the bike as he's just speeding. And I can just remember, all I should do is just hold on. Hold on. What saved me then, because I was slipping off, what saved me was not my goodness or my ability on a bike. My, the thing that saved me was holding on to him. Your ability to be saved is about how much you can hold on to Jesus. And the sanctuary shows that, that he has done everything he can to save you. He's gone to every measure that he can to save you. The reality is that there is a judgment, and judgment will come. And there's going to be people that's going to be saved, and there's going to be people that are going to be lost. We don't want anybody to be lost. Jesus doesn't want anybody to be lost. But the reality is some will be lost, because not everybody holds on to Jesus. My prayer is that it won't be you. My prayer is that you will say, Lord, judgment is going to vindicate you and this world, and I'm not fearful of judgment, because I know that I've been a sinner, I know that I've been a scoundrel, but I've been saved by Jesus Christ and His blood. I've been, I've been baptized into his, his righteousness. I've been resurrected in you. I know the Spirit is working within me. And so, Lord, I'm just holding on to you, and I know that this bullet is going, and I'm just holding on to you till the day that you come again. I know that I have been justified and saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, and now I'm looking for the day when the presence of sin will be removed. And until that day, until the clouds are rolled away and we hear the trumpet sound, until the day that Jesus comes again, all that we will do is to hold on to Jesus, to hold on to Jesus every single day.